a Podcast One production. Imagine a little girl. She's 11 years old. She lives on an old farm in the outskirts of Melbourne. She's just lost her dad to cancer and her mum is about to lose the family home where she grew up. She walks out into the paddock, her shoulders hunched, her feet dragging through the dust. She walks further and further until her house becomes a dot in the distance behind her. She sits on the red dirt, lays her head in her hands and begins to sob uncontrollably. Her hands become wet with tears and her face turns red, but she can't stop. And then she feels it, licking, wet, slobbery, wonderful licking, a dog. No, dogs, all around her. They lick at her face, nuzzling their snouts into her cheeks, drying her eyes with their fur, then resting themselves on her lap. It's as if the dogs were sharing that little girl's burden, reassuring her that things were going to be okay and convincing her to step back from the darkness and return to the world. That little girl was me. I sat in that paddock, having just lost my dad, with the knowledge we were about to lose a family home. And in that moment of despair, my dogs were right there beside me. They knew what I felt, and they felt it too. This was when I knew I was going to become an animal behaviourist. My name's Laura V, and welcome to Dognitive Therapy. In this series, we'll be looking at the way our human behaviours affect our dog's behaviours. From jealousy to empathy, loyalty, fear, and even mindfulness... We'll be hearing from experts and dog lovers with insights that will change the way you see your dog and might even change the way you see yourself. Today's episode, Purpose. Beres had a rescue dog called Bonza. He was six years old when he was found by the Animal Rescue Centre, emaciated and skeletal on death's door. But he survived and was adopted by a woman who cared for him for years. When she couldn't look after Bonza anymore, she asked Beres if she would take him in. Beres accepted and thought it was only going to be a temporary thing, until, of course, she fell in love with Bonza. Bonza, me and Bonza. He, over time, had some issues, and um, I, in the last year of his life, I spent a lot of money, and I I don't regret it, and would do it again, Uh, to help to see as long as his quality of life was good, um, I wanted this boy to be part of my life. Wasn't to be in the end. He um, he got very sick and he, he died nine months ago. <clears throat> and I would have to say that that was probably the hardest time in my life. So he was euthanised and um, took him down to 
Bangami Pet Cemetery, drove down there, waited while his little body was cremated and uh, brought him home. And um, I have to say, I slept on his bed holding his ashes for quite some time. Um, I lost 10 kilos in weight, wasn't interested in eating. I just, um, I can't express how much I, I love this dog. It was, it, was, it was almost like losing part of myself. It, it, was, it, was, it was reminiscent, no different to me, to when my mother died. It was the same grief, the same loss, the same um, lack of... What's the point after that? What is the point of going on, you know? When we have someone to love, it gives our life a sense of meaning, a purpose. Beres found her purpose in loving Bonza, and Bonza found his purpose loving Beres right back. There's no denying that love can give our lives purpose and the love between humans and dogs is powerful. I spoke with Dr Peter Higgins, veterinarian, lecturer and dog lover. He talked to me about the importance of finding purpose not just for ourselves but also for our dogs. Thank you so much, Peter, for catching up with me today. Can you tell us how you got involved with Hope Street? Look, Hope Street's a really great initiative. It's an initiative of the University of Sydney, the veterinary school there, uh, but also uh, a group called Baptist Care, and Baptist Care uh, does a, a range of things to help people across uh, across Australia. Um, and so what, uh, what we wanted to do was to help the people in the inner city areas of Sydney, mainly those that are homeless, but also those that may not be homeless, but be living in public housing, for example, and, and be in a bit of you know, financial difficulty at the moment. And these people um, that, that they're in those positions um, usually have pets, and the pets are actually, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but the, the, the pets are actually what gives the human a purpose in life. Uh, also gives the dog a purpose in life too. Um, but of course, people who are homeless can't afford veterinary fees. So the university got together with Baptist Care and basically set up a free veterinary clinic um, for people um, in an inner city area of Sydney. You mentioned that the dogs give these homeless people purpose and a point in life, I can imagine. But, but how are these people giving that back to those dogs? You know, we all know that dogs have been huddle around the campfire of humans now for, you know, 10,000 years or whatever period you want to say that is. And so, you know, dogs have always had a purpose of sorts. Um, the, the purpose here is they know what they're doing. They know, the dogs actually know um, that they're actually helping the person that is their owner. Um, it's, you know, when we talk about the human-animal bond, we talk about it with most pet, you know, how it relates to most pet owners, but this, this is a level above that. It really is. I mean, the, because of the the, you know, the condition that some of these people find themselves in, the relationship with their animals and vice versa, the animals with them, is, is something very, very special. It's a very close bond. Um, and it's, it is a two-way street and the dogs actually do know um, that they're helping them. I'm actually absolutely positive about that. How? Well, what they're doing is they're helping the self-esteem, I believe, of the people that are there. They're, you know, when, when they come, so let's, let's take a sick dog. So they come in, person walks in with their shoulders drooped, they're expecting the worst sort of news um, about their dog. And when you can actually do something for it, they literally walk out the door with a spring in their step. You know, they're, they're actually walking proud, walking, walking tall. They're, they're, there's actually a huge difference um, between people that have a pet and those that don't. And then after you uh, treat their pet and it, and it gets better, there's another, you can see a noticeable difference. I've seen it now 
so many times. It's whilst it's anecdotal, it's it's definitely there. Something you know, as an animal behaviourist myself, I get calls every day about people who are driven mad by their dogs' bad behaviour. <laughs> you know, digging up the backyard or driving them absolutely crazy. But when you walk past a homeless person on the street with their dog, you invariably see this most impeccably well-behaved dog beside them. Why do you think that is? What's the difference? Look, I think. Again, it goes back to the reason why the person and the a dog are together. They're together to help each other out. I mean, you know, a, a dog in in a pet situation at home um, can you know be spoiled a fair bit, and and that that doesn't happen as much. Having said that, um, the dogs I see from people that are homeless are probably looked after better, <laughs> um, or at least as well, maybe even better uh, than most of the people in affluent homes around around Sydney. So it's amazing they they, they really look after their animals. So well um, that I think um, the reason why the dogs are so well behaved is that it's just the way they're treated. That's really it. As you know, as a behavioralist, a lot of the problems of behaviour starts with the owner, not with the dog. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and you know that as well as I do. Yeah, so. you're preaching to the converted there. Yeah, absolutely, yes. It's, it's funny you say, you know, like money and affluence and what you actually have in terms of materialistic things really mean nothing to a dog, do they? No, I mean, that's the thing. A dog's love is unconditional. So you could be living in a public park in Sydney or in a, you know, a mansion on Sydney Harbour um, with views of, of the opera house, etc. And the dog doesn't care. He, he, he or she just wants the relationship with the owner. You know, they just, just want to cuddle up to you and, and be recognised. So it is unconditional love. There's no, no doubt about that. When it comes to dogs and their owners living it rough out on the streets, how are they looking after each other? It, it, that's a really good question. They're, 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 dogs and, and people are looking after each other probably in a similar way that it would have happened 10,000 years ago, say. So, you know, in those days they were around a campfire, they used to literally sleep together, keep each other warm physically. Um, dog was a bit of a guard dog as well. But it was also there was that companionship and they did literally sleep together. So that's pretty similar to what's happening with a lot of homeless people now. They're, you know, they're literally sleeping together and uh, and they are. They're physically keeping each other warm. So it sort of goes back to, to how all this started, the whole human-animal bond thing started. So there's a number of things. And as I said to you, one of the main things dogs do is give give self-esteem back, I think, to the owner. Um, it, it gives them a reason, I suppose, to get up each morning. You know, it's a, it's a hard life. It's, it's rough. And I've, I've visited these people wearing other hats, not, not as a vet, um, you know, and they're sleeping in the cold, they're, they're sleeping in the open, they're sleeping under bushes. It's a hard life. So what, why would you get up and walk around? There's, there's not much to look forward to. So, But a dog gives them a reason to do that. And from the dog's point of view, you know, the, the dog, I, I'm absolutely positive the dog knows what they're doing. Absolutely positive. They, they know the role they're playing. You mentioned that these dogs on the streets give their owners, um, you know, a sense of purpose and a sense of self-esteem. You know, these people will hold their heads up high with their dog beside them. Do you think it also helps them improve other things like their social skills and the way they interact with other people? Yeah. Um, ha- having a dog does help you interact with other people, w- regardless of whether you're homeless or whether you're affluent. Um, you know, anyone that's taken a dog for a walk is, is an automatic magnet to, to most people. Well, when, when people would normally ignore you as you walk past them, quite often they'll say hello to you if you're walking a dog. So that's the same with someone that's homeless or, or living rough. When they've got a dog, people go to them. We did another day in Parramatta in Sydney, um, which was uh, a full day of, of offering services to homeless people. And there was one guy that came quite a long way and he was the centre of attention. Now, he struck me as someone that normally wouldn't be all that 
talkative, but because he had this little puppy with him, everyone wanted to talk to him. And all of a sudden, he's you know he's, he was quite eloquent. In fact, so um, it it does make a difference. It, it helps people, I think, relate to other humans. For you as a vet, Peter, and also as an animal lover, what's been the most challenging case you've ever had to deal with? If we're not talking about homeless people, the thing, it's not a case, it's a thing that annoys and and still to this day after 30 years, it's someone that comes in with a healthy animal and they want it euthanized. And they want it euthanized because, yeah, it's a Kelpie and all of a sudden they've realized it does need a lot of work. And just because Red Dog's a good movie, it's not a good reason to get a Kelpie. (laughs) And, And there's other trendy breeds that go through phases. And quite often these dogs come in and they want the dog euthanized because it doesn't fit into their lifestyle. Um, that, to this day, I have trouble managing personally. Um, How so, do you deal with that? Sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, I've got goosebumps thinking about the fact that someone could even consider that as an option for a dog that isn't behaving the way they want. How do you deal with that? Well, I, I usually deal with it by, by first of all, saying I'm not going to euthanise it now. I've sort of got to the stage where I say no, and that rather than euthanise it, we'll find it another home. And that works only in about half the cases you'll be interested to know. The other half you say, nah, they want to find it at home. Um, I still want it euthanized. Um, so, but then about half of them will say, well, if you can help find Red Dog a home, then, then do that. Um, so that's the way I manage it now. So that's not a specific case, but that's, that's the thing that, that still to this day um, is the downside of being a veterinary surgeon. I know you and I agree on this, that the the behavioural issues stem from the owner, not the dog. (laughs) 99 times out of 100, it's it's something to do with the owner. And in the case of homeless people, yeah, absolutely. Um, They, you know, if if you're on the corner of Collins and Elizabeth Street in Melbourne, I mean, that's where you're sleeping. The dog's going to be pretty socialised. A lot of people walking past, you know, that corner. Same in in Sydney, you know, the corner of George and Park Street, say. There's a lot of people walking past in the inner city CBD cities of of Australia. Um, And so the dog becomes socialised and they're very well behaved. And again, that comes back to the owner. The owner, I think, whilst being homeless, is more realistic about, you know, what their expectations are and the way they treat their dog. When we're thinking about a whole range of different behaviours with dogs, do you think that it's possible that anxious people make for anxious dogs? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, anxious, you know, what, what's the old saying? It travels down the lead. <laughs> um, so if the owner's nervous, the dog becomes nervous. If the owner is anxious, the dog becomes anxious. Um, if the owner's confident, the, owner, the dog becomes confident. If the owner feels safe and acts in a safe way, so does the dog. So they'll pick up our emotions. Their, their language is body language. Uh, their language um, is not Vocal language is not the same as us. They, they, they understand a few words, um, but their language is, is watching us and seeing how we react to things, and then they react accordingly. So um, th- there's no doubt they pick up the same emotions or, or the same feelings. They might not quite the same emotions, but they, f- they pick up the feelings of what their owners are doing. You know what I find, Pete, is that most of the cases that I have with poor dog behaviour is really driven by anxiety. Uh, Do you find that a lot of the dogs that are presented to you in in your clinic are anxious or have a background of anxiety? Yeah, I think think most behavioural problems, um, certainly probably over two-thirds or around two-thirds, can be traced back to anxiety of some sort. 
Yeah, I agree. There's still those that can't, but anxiety, I think, is the main cause for most of the behavioural problems um, that we're seeing. And whether it's separation anxiety, whether it's uh, an anxiety because, and you can get a form of anxiety because you're sitting around doing nothing and you feel like you should be running, that's a form of anxiety. That's a mental anxiety rather than a physical one. Um, so, so I agree. I think anxiety is a real condition in dogs. It's not made up. It's not, uh, you know, a story. Um, and that is the, the crux, I suppose, of many behavioural issues that we're seeing. Mm. If we think a lot of this is about the human, should we just be sending the human to a psychologist <laughs> instead of me working with the dog? <laughs> it's an interesting point, actually. Um, Am I no, out of a job here? <laughs> no, I would have thought as behavioralists, you're probably <laughs> dealing with the owner more than you are with the dog in many ways anyway. But, um, uh, well... I think owners do have to go through some sort of training, yes. Um, I've advocated for a little while now that to own a dog, an owner should do a course, a training course. Um, not, not an elaborate one, but something where they actually know um, how dogs think and also do some basic commands. You know, sit, come, stay or do. <laughs> um, just those three. You, know, you can save most situations by those three simple commands. So I've said for a while that we should be making it illegal requirement that dog owners actually do some sort of training themselves. State governments usually find that a bit scary and politically not a good thing, but but I think it'd be the best thing for society and for the dogs. (laughs) I'm Laura V and you're listening to Dognitive Therapy. If you enjoy this series, give it a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show for free. So a lot of people listening with a dog right now will probably be going, oh gosh, it's actually not the dog, it's me. (laughs) Do you have an idea for these people of what they can actually physically or or emotionally do to turn that dog around without medication? Yeah, okay. So so first of all, you can fix an old dog up. You, you can teach an old dog new tricks. You can actually do that. So um, It's easier when they're a puppy, but you can still do it regardless of their age. And so the first step would be, I believe, to go and see a vet first of all and, and discuss that through in case um, that you do have to do medical intervention um, and, you, and you might have to give drugs. So that's a possibility in, in many cases. But if you don't get down to behavioural, I'll give you a story. So I had a, a dog come in just recently at the University Veterinary Teaching Hospital, which is where I'm working at the moment, and it was a, a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, and it was a, a little bit, um, shall we say, snappy with people. Now, that's not normally a, a Staffy. Staffies are usually pretty good with people. They're not so good with other dogs. And so when we delved into this, we found out that the person that owned it um, had just separated from their partner. So... The dog was living with the guy and hadn't seen the woman since they separated um, and didn't know what was going on. So it was sort of experiencing some sort of grief. So so basically what we had to do is work with that dog um, and get the owner to, to reassure the dog that everything was okay. I actually forced him to go and visit his ex-partner with the dog, which he wasn't all that happy about, but he did it for the dog's sake. So after a period of, and this, there's no magic bullet with these things, as you know, um, after a period of about six weeks, you know, the dog was happy as Larry again and he, he was licking people, wasn't snappy at all um, and was back to his normal self. So, you know, that's, that's a good example, I think, of where you say that's a behavioural issue. We know that's caused by an anxiety of sorts. So rather than jump in with Prozac or Ritalin or other drugs that we can use, let's see what we can do behaviourally first. And that was 100% successful. So, and once again, you can teach an old dog new tricks. 
I love that you say that because for a, a behaviour that we don't like, it's so important to look at the cause rather than band-aiding the actual problem. And as you're saying, that dog was snappy, but why? Why is mm-hmm. that dog feeling that way? Why are they expressing themselves that way? And you found out what the cause was. And often it's a really simple action to take to help that dog overcome their anxieties and show them that you are actually listening and you're showing some empathy towards how they're feeling. Yeah, and that, I should have said that particular dog was five years old, so it was a, a middle-aged dog, so, you, you know, you can, as I say, you can teach them new tricks. Yeah, it, it was good. We, we worked out what the problem was. It was an easy solution except for the fact he didn't want to go see his ex, but <laughs> but he, he did it. And it was interesting of itself. He did that solely and so did she just for the dog's sake. That's what they they did that for, both of them. Um, so that's kind of interesting too, you know, the, the power of canines, you know, have two people that are almost hating each other now, um, see each other because it's beneficial to the dog. So I found out what the cause was and and this time it worked. Sometimes it's not always us. I mean, we we might adopt a dog from a previous home and they might come with a whole range of baggage from a previous life, I suppose. Can we help those dogs? You can help a dog from a previous owner. It's harder. It is a lot harder, I'll have to admit that, because quite often the previous owner may have been cruel to it or hit it or, you know, all those things and, or not even that extreme. The previous owner could have been an exceptionally anxious, worried person and it passed that to the dog. Um, so even without being cruel, you can still pass on negative emotions, I guess, to a dog. So it is a bit harder, but not, not, um, it's still doable. You can still do something about that. I'll give you another example of this only recently. So I had a dog come in for vaccinations just recently and, and the owner said, oh, you're going to have to muzzle it. And I said, oh, okay, why is that? It was a biggish dog. It was about the size of a German Shepherd. And I said, why is that? You know, well, I've rehomed this dog and it uh, doesn't like men. Now, for, you can't, you can see me, but for those listening can't see me, I'm six foot four, take up a fair bit of Australia um, <laughs> and a bit blokey, I suppose. So uh, I said, all right, well, I'll use myself here as a bit of a guinea pig on this dog. And look, within 10 minutes, um, I literally had the dog eating out of my hand with some treats and I gave it a vaccination, a needle, and he just stared at me and he was fine. So if I can do that in a 10 minute period when he walked in growling, then, you know, an owner can do that over a period of weeks if they work at it. So there's no magic bullet though. That's the thing. People, particularly in modern day society, want an immediate fix on things. Um, with a lot of behavioural issues, it's, as you know, um, there's not an immediate fix. It, it can take weeks or even months. And so there's no silver bullet. There's nothing like that. You've just got to work at it. Uh, but again, that dog it was literally walking out the door wagging its tail with me standing next to it and it only took 10 minutes or so, a little bit of work. But how, um, so. how did you do that though? I literally got down to its level. Um, I spoke to it in a calm, moderated voice. I did offer him treats, and I know that's not necessarily the, the best way to train dogs, but in this case, in his condition, I thought it was. Um, he reluctantly took the treats, and then from then on, we were best mates. Um, so um, so that was just with me, so he may remember me next time, but he's, the owner then has to do that with all men um, so that you can't have a dog that bites men or bites women or bites a certain part of society only. You, you've got to have a dog that, that's comfortable with everybody, socialised everyone. So, yeah, so, so in this case, it worked by, you know, a little bit of dogmanship, dognitive therapy even. <laughs> so really what you did is you thought about how the dog was feeling, where they were coming from, why they felt that way, and you listened to that and you acted accordingly. So you got down so that you were on a similar level. You offered something that would make them feel comfortable. And as you said, within 10 minutes, just simply by having a bit of empathy, you overcame those anxieties for that dog. 
Yes, pretty good summary of it, yeah, and bribing it with food. But, but even <laughs> so, the, the bribing with food, as you know, doesn't always work. Um, it's, it's the rest of it's just as important. You know, me, me being six foot four can be a bit intimidating. So it's a good thing I, I quite often get down to a dog's level um, and talking in a calm, moderated voice, et cetera, it helps too. So just simple little things. It's interesting you say that because a lot of dog owners will tell me that their dog is this voracious eater at home. You know, you can't stop them from eating at home, but as soon as you go for a walk, they're not interested in treats at all. And they think, oh, they're only hungry at home, but when they go for a walk, they don't want treats and they don't know why. Why do you think that is? I think treats are overused, but they're better using treats than nothing. Um, no, when, when the dog goes for a walk, there's too many other things to be interested in. There's there's other dogs, uh, cats, birds, you know, wildlife, smells on trees, smells in the grass, um, other people, just things happening around them. So, um, you know, they're being stimulated by all their senses are being stimulated. Mm. So, so they don't really need a treat. They're happy just it being stimulated. And most training these days is heading towards not using treats as a reward. Um, you know, you, we've got we've got clicker training now, which um, which I'm a believer in. So I've actually got a clicker with me. <laughs> is that for me? <laughs> I'm already sitting. Think, I, I'm already being well behaved. I, I don't think I can train you, Laura. <laughs> I'm untrainable. It's, I'm yeah. too far gone. It's interesting that you say you're trying to phase out food because for me, what I am most interested in is understanding what the dog's motivated by. So when you're saying you don't generally use treats if you're going for a walk. It's kind of like, you know, us, if we're hyper-stimulated and there's lots going on in our lives and we're thoroughly enriched, we don't really think about eating a packet of chips, you know. It's, it's interesting that you talk about thinking about what a dog wants and what they're interested in, what they're motivated by. It doesn't always have to come down to food. But if food works, is it okay to use that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. If food works, then use it. Um, we want the outcome, um, how we get there less important, um, but the outcome is what we're after. Um, but in what you just said, you made me think about something I hadn't thought of before, that, that I suppose humans are a bit the same, aren't we? Um, we um, if we're stimulated, if we've got plenty of things to do, you know, I've been for a day when I haven't actually eaten and haven't really thought about it because I've just had so many things to do in the day. So I, so you've given me something to think about now. I actually thought that humans are a bit similar that way, that uh, if we're completely stimulated, then, then we're not looking for food either. So clicker training is important though. Just, this is what I mean by clicker training. So it's just one of those clickers that you would have had when you were a kid probably and you reward the dog with a, with a treat or something else and you also at the same time click this clicker and then after a while take away the food and just use the clicker as the reward. So it's Pavlovian in a way. They associate the noise with a positive outcome and you can get them to sit, come, stay, etc., uh, just by using that noise, that clicker noise. Uh, instead of food. Uh, it takes takes a while, uh, but it but it actually works well, and that way you don't get an obese dog either. What do you think about the, the food bowl for a dog? Do you think, like for me, I think it's a big waste of five seconds of a dog's life. Do you think there's a better way for dogs to get their food? Yeah, um, I'm kind of a bit like you. It's probably between five seconds and 20, depending on how gutsy the dog is, I guess. But I think we have an over-reliance on food with dogs and in, in modern society. Um, again, if we go back to homeless people, they're certainly feeding their dogs. They're feeding dogs quite well. They'll, they'll go out of their way to make sure that they, they get the right food. But they're not overfeeding them either. There's not too many obese dogs that belong to a homeless person. But they're, similarly, they're not underweight either. They're actually a good conditioned dog. They're in about the right weight. So I think most pet owners place too much emphasis on the food. And they'll, they'll also, not only that, but they'll also 
you know, they, they don't have tough love. You know, if a, if a dog wants a certain type of food and you feed them normal dog food, what most people would say is normal, if they don't eat it, then they, they give in and, and give them something else. Well, that's not the case. You're, the owner's the boss. The owner's the pack leader, if you like. And so they decide what the dog eats. The dog itself shouldn't shouldn't dictate all that. So I think there is an over-reliance on, on uh, over-importance rather on food with modern day pet owners. I read somewhere the other day that about 20% of dogs are overweight. <laughs> if we're talking about Australia, the current figure is actually more than 20%. It's above 30%. So almost one third of Australian pet dogs are obese. Um, so that comes back to two things. One is they're not exercised enough and also they're, they're being fed too much, but they're probably being fed the wrong things. So it's food that's inappropriate and it's not enough exercise. So they're the two reasons why we, we're seeing an epidemic in obesity in dogs as well as, I suppose, an epidemic with obesity in humans as well. What about mental exercise? Mental exercise in, in dogs is just as important, I believe, as, as physical exercise. Again, if we think about behavioural problems, as you know, anxiety is one of the main causes. And most behavioural issues, as you know, can be treated without drugs. Drugs, in my opinion, is a last resort. So mental exercise is a, is a good thing. And by that, I mean, give them something to do. Um, so with some dogs, with some working dogs, that's not going to work. A Kelpie, for example, just needs work and that's all there is to it. If they don't get to run all the time, forget it. You're not, you're not going to be able to substitute that with something else. But most other dogs you can. So give them a role at home, give them a job. It doesn't have to be a big job. But you know, my own dog, for example, her job is to go out and get her red ball and bring it in. And she carries that ball around. And then I put it away at night and in the morning I throw it out. And, she, and so that's a job. So she actually knows she's doing it. She doesn't know why she's doing it, uh, but that's a, that's a job to a dog. Now, it's not a real job to us, but to a dog it is. So give a dog something to do. Um, even if you can't go for a lot of walks, actually give them a purpose. Give them a reason to do something around the house that doesn't have to be a human job. Catching a ball and bringing it back is not a human job, but she'll carry that around with her and she's pretty happy about that and she knows she's doing the right thing. And my, I've got two dogs and the other dog knows he's the head of security um, so whenever I take him out, he does a patrol around the perimeter, around the fence to make sure everything's okay. And then he'll come back to me. So he knows that he's a guard dog. Now, if anything actually happened, he, and this is just between you and me, <laughs> he'd, he'd be running inside to, to, to hide under the bed, but, but he still acts as a guard dog. That's his job. So give him a purpose. If you give him a purpose, a lot of problems won't happen. I think a lot of people think that if you've got to give your dog purpose and a job, that it takes a lot of time and effort on the human end. But I, I tell a lot of people, you know, in between TV ad breaks or when you're <laughs> boiling the kettle for a coffee, you know, all those little moments, you know, two, three minutes here and there to get your dog to do something. If you're doing that, you know, when you get home from work or on a weekend, it's amazing how much mental stimulation can make a dog feel that sense of purpose. Yeah, and you're right. It doesn't have to be, you know, an orchestrated one hour of your day. I mean, if you've got an outside clothesline, when you're walking to the clothesline, take the dogs with you and give them something to do on the way and while you're doing the, while you're taking, putting the clothes or taking the clothes off the line. If you're doing some gardening, the same thing there. Um, and as you say, in TV ad breaks, you can do something there. So it doesn't have to be in critical times of the day. You can do it in downtime and, and it can be quite fun. A, a purpose could even be, depending on the sort of dog, um, is is cuddling up to you on the lounge and sitting on your lap. That could be a purpose in a way because, um, you know, the dog's there, everyone's comfy um, and everyone's, you know, going back to the whole human-animal bond issue of, of living together. So 
that could actually be a purpose late at night, having a dog sitting in the lap while you're watching TV. Um, so, you know, it's a purpose from the dog's point of view, not from the human's point of view. Dr. Peter Higgins, you have been an absolute gem. Thank you so much for your time. I've so enjoyed talking to you, Laura. I hope we can do it again. They say that God is unconditional love. You know, that's what God, what God is meant to be. And if you look at God, then God is dog backwards. And I, I, I think to myself now that but maybe humankind wasn't made in God's image. Maybe dogs were made in God's image. And if that's the case, then my goodness, Bonza was a god. This show was written by me, Laura V, and my amazing producer, Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is by Darcy Thompson. Executive producers are Jennifer Goggin and Grant Tothill. If you want to see additional content, photos and videos of some of the gorgeous dogs in this series, go to our Instagram page at podcast1au or check us out on Facebook. Dognitive Therapy is a Podcast One production recorded in the Podcast One studios, Melbourne.